Okay, Seven Tolls makes it official. On behalf of the Respect Life Committee here at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, good evening everyone and thank you for coming. Tonight is our third event being held here at OLMC in our Sundays at Seven series for Respect Life Month. We'd love to have you back next week to hear from Notre Dame professor Patrick Deneen about how society today and our culture affect our faith. Or on the 30th for our final talk by Sister Peter Marie, a Nashville Dominican who is the assistant principal here at the parish school. This evening's speaker converted to Catholicism in 2012, then was ordained a priest in 2021. A native of Fishers, he was sent to parishes near home for his first assignment at the pastorate of Holy Spirit at Geist and St. John Vianney here in Hamilton County. His love languages are internet memes and caloric intake, which we are pretty sure is why he gets along so well with our pastor. There's a footnote, I did not write that. His talk tonight is entitled, Hope, Seen with Sacramental Vision. Please join me in a warm welcome for Father Andrew Thornton. Well, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father. We are your humble servants. We come before you today in need of hope. There are times when we feel helpless. There are times when we feel weak. We pray for hope. We need hope for a better future. We need hope for a better life. We need hope for love and kindness. Some say that the sky is at its darkest just before the light. We pray that this is true for the world can seem dark. We need your light, Lord, in every way. We pray to be filled with your light with completeness. We want to see with your glory, to know that all is right with the world. Everything is going to be just as you have planned and as you want it to be. Help us to walk in your light and to see with eyes of faith and glory. Don't allow me to say anything that is against your will and be with us now and always. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Famous uh, Father Luigi Giassani writes the following, quote, And here is the alternative in which man risks himself, even if almost unconsciously. Either you face reality wide open, loyally, with the bright eyes of a child, calling a spade a spade, embracing its entire presence, even its meaning. Either this, you place yourself in front of reality, Defend yourself against it, almost with your arms flung out in front of your eyes to ward off unwelcomed and unexpected blows. End quote. When I was a kid, I had dreams that I could fly, and I dreamt quite frequently that I could breathe underwater. I wish I could still experience that transcendence. My astigmatism is so high. I dream sometimes that I can see the intricacies of textured fabrics and the plumes of feathers on birds from 30 yards because, in real life, I cannot. I dream about these things and I so long for them. They're so beautiful. No one has ever experienced those things. Breathing underwater without a scuba tank and an individual cannot fly under their own power over Hamilton County and the surrounding areas in the fall when it's the prettiest. Yet, we desire these types of things so much that even against our wishes, the human heart makes them manifest. Like in dreams, we write automatopoetic volumes about the songs that pieces of metal called bells sing. We can look at clouds, which are actually just water vapors, and find some of them look like animals, bows and arrows, or even human faces. We write novels telling stories that have never actually happened, and they never will. 
The book Watership Down invents a language spoken by rabbits. Spider-Man shoots webs from his wrists. Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 will make me cry if I listen to it while I'm headed back to Indiana because somehow, without words, it reminds me of home. There is a reality beyond human experience, and we spend most of our lives looking for it. Not a single person in this room longs for something of this world alone and nothing further. We long for the infinite. It is undeniable. Yet since we are currently finite, we've convinced ourselves that the limitations, the restrictions, the reductions, and the constraints mean that there is nothing more in this world. I think I'll be the first to say, this hurts I want to go at the world with reckless abandon. We all do, even if it's not the mature thing to do. I like to think about things that don't have a chance of coming to existence on this earth. I don't think I'm the only one who believes with sincerity that as humans, we love fairy tales and stories so much because, well, that's what we were made for. I'm going to tell you something right now that our culture won't tell you. And in fact, they'll buck at this idea because it's dangerous to have this much hope. Those stories you've been told, especially the ones that you love the most, and especially the ones that tug at your heartstrings so strongly. You love those stories because, well, even if they don't happen this side of heaven, you love them because someday they'll really happen to you. I don't dream that I can fly anymore. I suspect that it is all because all of us, I've gradually convinced myself that fairy tales and the dreams and the hopes and the wonderful stories, they're just ideals. They're for children. They aren't real. They won't ever come true, and I'll never get what I want. So I shrug my shoulders, and I go to work, and I creakily get up and walk to the coffee pot every morning, and I just say that that's the way that it is. All of us are so blind. Alternatively, I believe that real Catholics live in an enchanted land. A world I believe many of us would mistake for Disneyland or CGI or not real if we were to visit with full understanding. It is a world of statues and holy water, stained glass and votive candles, saints and religious medals. To many, these artifacts are nothing more than blocks of concrete and baths, window art and red flames, historical people and necklace pendants. But Catholic paraphernalia, all of it contains hints of the deeper and inescapable religious sensibility which inclines Catholics to see the holy lurking in all of creation, practical or not. As Catholics, if we have our sight restored, we find our houses and our world haunted by a sense that the objects, events, and persons of daily life are actually revelations of grace. Instances in which God gives us gifts by the truckload and daily. I have a name for this situational awareness, and I think this special Catholic imagination can appropriately be called sacramental vision. Just like the seven we've memorized in religious ed, this focused vision sees created reality as a sacrament that is a revelation of God's presence. The workings of the sacred imagination are most obvious in those seven sacraments listed by the church, but the seven are both a result and a reinforcement of a much broader Catholic view of reality. I don't even need to say Catholic view of reality. It's a broader view of reality, period. Whether in heaven or in the possibility of earth, whether in our dreams or in personal desires that contain our sincerest hopes, may we learn to fly, brothers and sisters, and may we allow what we deem impossible possible with God. 
an attitude that is the alternative, that's purely material, practical, black and white, and without imagination in the end, I think is pathological. It's toxic to what it means to be human. I can guarantee you with complete certainty that the human being, unable to look forward to something positive in life, should expect to quickly descend into despair, frustration, and hatred as they experience their heart shrivel and petrify within their chest. That is a fact. Hope is a dangerous thing, dangerous to those who know that the hopeless are controllable and weak. Plainly, belief in the infinite makes the Christian unstoppable. Because of all of this, I hope to accomplish just three goals this, this evening. Number one, I want to try to define what this hope thing actually is. And I'm compelled to emphasize that these dreams, fairy tales, and imaginations that I'm uh, talking about a lot are the primary drivers to being able to understand it with full clarity. Number two, I want to convince you that hope is not just something to strive for. Hope is literally a requirement for survival. The more we have, the more likely we're destined for heaven. Therefore, increasing hope is to thrive once again. Also, theft of another's hope is directly comparable to spiritual murder. The same homicidal parallels can be made with the things culture tells us to hope in that are not heaven. And number three... I hope to make a few practical suggestions as to how we can increase hope and see with more of this sacramental vision. So, begin with uh, the fact that the Catechism writes the following about, the, this, about this hope. Quote, Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven. And eternal life is our happiness. Placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. The Holy Spirit, he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. End quote. You might notice that not once in that paragraph above does the church mention the object of hope, the thing we hope in, ever being of the world. We hope only in things that are infinite, not finite things. I know what you're thinking, mm, Father, I can tell you with certainty I am hoping for a really fast, nice car, right? I do hope, in actuality, my children will get their acts together and live a life that makes them, and secretly also me, happy, right? A couple weeks ago, um, I was uh, compelled to drive a rental car because of a car accident, and the car rental place got me a BMW. It was awesome. I have not had the luxury of such fun in my life previous, but I realized there are cars much faster than even that BMW that I had. I went to the Indy 500 last year. I mean, that's all I need to say, right? There are much faster things, supersonic jets and rockets. Still, all of these things are finite. Heaven does not have those constraints. So when we think, uh, when we think that we like want or hope something of this world, well, actually, we're hoping for a partial something in that object that exists in totality, infinitely in heaven so for example you could look at a really good landscape of a sunset on canvas appreciate its beauty and honestly say that it is a beautiful thing or you could find a real sunset and think about the fact that god may have made that sunset just for you yeah a painting is beautiful but the sunset is getting pretty close to incarnate beauty So when we hope for something to happen here on earth, we're actually hoping for that thing, or we're really hoping that we'll experience it completely in heaven. No matter how hard we try, no matter how long we persist, the utopia of heaven will never become a reality in this world. 
But we weren't made for the world in the first place, were we? So the Catechism continues on this hope virtue. Quote, The virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness, happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. It takes up the hopes that inspire men's activities and purifies them so as to order them to the kingdom of heaven. It keeps man from discouragement and it sustains him during times of abandonment. It hopes it opens up his heart in expectation of eternal beatitude. Buoyed up by hope, he is preserved from selfishness and led to the happiness that flows from charity. It's this connection to the heavenly things that is a requirement for hope. We must look for the infinite and we must uh, completely grasp that in order for ourselves to establish this hope and develop a sacramental imagination. So, um, I'd like to run a quick little experiment here really quickly, okay? I'm just going to mention these words, and I want you guys to think about what I'm saying, okay? All right, I'm going to say, I want all of you to think about the Taj Mahal. Okay, all right, the Taj Mahal, okay. So go ahead and give me a show of hands. Has anybody here seen the Taj Mahal in person? Great, perfect, right. Okay, nobody has seen the Taj Mahal in person, but if I were to able to, to hook up a computer to each and every one of our brains, I bet a lot of us would have the exact same image in our heads right now, right? You know, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of like a, um, a leading up to the Lincoln Memorial kind of waterfront that's leading up to this uh, uniquely shaped dome in the middle. Uh, that's the Taj Mahal. We've seen it plenty of times in textbooks or on the internet or videos or whatever, right? Even though none of us in this room have ever seen the Taj Mahal, none of us here have ever touched it, taken a photo of it or anything like that, we're still able to uh, understand it, to grasp it, to imagine it, right? That's imagination, Okay. What's really fascinating is that we can do this with anything. I could say the same thing. I could say, show me, uh, 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 by raising your hand, who has seen incarnate beauty? Beauty. Not something that is beautiful, but who has seen incarnate beauty in person? Yeah. We can't necessarily see that, right? Ultimately, we can only develop that between our ears. It doesn't exist here on this plane, here in this heavenly in this earthly realm right it only exists in heaven so what i want to develop is an understanding of this imagination and so um uh, when i was in seminary um i was uh, uh i had a, a discipline called uh systematics it's just basically i'm a, a theological huge nerd okay i like to say that I'm, I'm kind of like an engineer except with theology right Engineers understand that, uh, you know, if you, if you turn this knob two clicks to the right, then ultimately it's going to change the function of the machine. So we're going to have a different uh, output because that engineer understands how that machine works together. A theological engineer uh, does kind of the same thing, except it's only the machine of theology. If I say something about uh, ecclesiology, the study of the church, then ultimately the result is going to have uh, some impact even on Mariology, perhaps. What, what, what we understand about Mary, it's all interconnected. It's all an enclosed system, uh, this theology thing. So what I've done is I, I think when it comes to revelation and it comes to us understanding and develop this theological uh, and sacramental imagination, understanding who God is and what ways that he reveals himself to us, I've kind of uh, separated it out in three different ways that we can develop our, our theological imagination. And I associate them with the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, the, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, right? And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, plays an especially personal and intimate role in each individual's life. So um, if I can have some help, um, let me think here. Um, uh, do we have any, uh, perhaps, gardeners in the room? Is there anybody that's a gardener? Or a horticulturist or uh, somebody that's interested in trees? Are there any animal lovers? Nobody loves animals. 
You're, you're just free. Uh, no, uh, there's no right or wrong answers. There's not going to be midterms at the end of this, I promise. All right, so uh, what's your name, sir? Dave? Okay, great. Okay, Dave, uh, you said you're an animal lover? Okay, sure. And a tree lover? Okay, all right, let's, let's go with the tree thing. Okay, so Dave, what's, uh, uh, what, if you had to choose one, what's your favorite type of tree? A maple. Okay. What's so great about a maple tree? What, what makes a maple tree? Shady. It's shady? Green in the summer. Green in the summer. Beautiful in the spring. Beautiful in the fall. Great. Thank you so much, Dave. Let's give Dave a round of applause. You great. You did it. You passed. All right. So Dave is interested in trees. He's interested in a maple. And he says that it's especially shady and green in the spring. And uh, for that reason, it makes it, it makes it his favorite type of tree if he had to choose one, right? So let's zero in on one of those things, which is trees are actually a, a, a common example in scripture, especially when it's really shady. So we're going we're gonna to latch onto that, right? Okay. So a tree is shady, right? And that's why Dave likes maple trees is because they're shady, right? Uh, so uh, maybe there's an infant, a really small little maple tree that's just starting out, right? And it's, it's shady, but it's not super shady, right? It's not like I can lay under uh, a six-month-old sapling of a maple tree and take a nap and uh, be provided by the heat of the summer uh, or avoid the, the, the heat of the summer because it's so shady, a little sapling of a maple tree. That's not going to work. Now, however, if I can think of it, you know, uh, maybe a 20-year-old maple tree uh, can definitely provide that. My parents have a crimson king in their backyard that's beautiful, and I, I probably have taken a nap under it at some point. It's very shady. It's very beautiful, uh, and it provides a lot of good shade. If we keep going about that, okay, so we, prepare, we, we compare that sapling to that much larger crimson king, right? That crimson king is shadier, and Dave is starting to like it a little bit more and more and more because it's shadier and shadier and shadier, right? As we can understand it, eventually there is going to be a tree here on earth that is the shadiest. There's only one, right? And further than that, if we, if we take it from like a mathematical kind of perspective, if we, if we take it and make sure that it, it, it's exponential, it goes straight up, and we find something that has infinity amount of shadiness, right? That's ways that we can look around... And we can say, okay, that's an aspect of God that is present here in in the world, right? I'm looking at creation, and I'm deriving from it God. And maybe in a little bit of a a metaphorical kind of way, but God provides us shade, right? I mean, whenever there's a a, a really hot, boiling sun that uh, causes us to be sunburnt or causes us to be uh, overwhelmingly hot, well, God is the cool of the evening as it's talked about in scripture. God, it provides that for us. And in a weird way, we can look at a maple tree, and from that we can derive God. Isn't that incredible? What you just did was what I understand is is finding God in the first person of the Trinity as he's revealed to us. Okay, great. Okay, do we have uh, even somebody that has uh, is a scripture uh, somebody that loves scripture, maybe somebody that's done um, uh, a Bible in a year recently, something like that. Yeah? Oh, great. Good. Good. What's your name? Todd. Okay. All right, Todd. Okay, so if you had to choose one, and it can be Noah and the Ark, if you had to choose one, you know, what's a, what's a scripture story that you really like? Judith. Okay. What do you like about Judith. The intrigue, okay. Heroism, great, okay, all right. Um, Very good. Uh, Okay, so you like Judith because of, we'll latch on to heroism, okay? Okay, sounds great, perfect, perfect. Okay, so uh, we'll go back to this. Okay, so um, uh, when it comes to uh, the canonization of saints, that is, uh, you know, there's a regular person, they live a really, really great life, and then they become a saint. And then, you know, there's this big ceremony. The Pope comes out and he sits on a chair and he says, person X is a saint. And everybody goes crazy. Ah, great. You know, we're the, we're the big Roman church, right? Okay. So that's the canonization process. 
There's actually three things that you, well, yeah, you need three things in order for us to become a saint. And one of them is two examples of the same thing. But there's three things. Does anybody have any idea what it is? The first one's easy. What's that? A holy life. What I was specifically looking for is that they have to display heroic virtue. Yeah, but so this, that's how that's going to connect there. We'll go through the other two. The other two is that you have to do, have two approved miracles. And the third one, that's the easy one, is that no living person can be canonized saint, right? You have to be dead, okay? <laughs> All right, cool. So, okay, we're going to latch onto that hero, heroic virtue thing. Okay, so over here we, we have an example of Judith. She is so heroic. Saints have heroic virtue. The way that I like to explain it is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he entered into the world in the incarnation, the enfleshment, as I like to call it, right? He entered into not just humanness, but also space and time. So a lot of times, what I like to say is that second aspect of Revelation and a development of our sacramental imagination in our heads is Jesus Christ in the context of history. Judith is a great example of heroic virtue, but also we have many, many, many examples of heroic virtue, including Jesus Christ, including all the things that God did for people in the Old Testament, or even saints that were recently uh, died, John, St. John Paul II, uh, recent saints. All of them displayed heroic virtue. What is that to say? repetitively, when we see in the context of history, behaviors, peoples, or events that display that heroism, well, we can say, well, that Jesus is a present in that. Jesus didn't come one time to be incarnate back in the Bible days, as, as people call it, right? Jesus is still present here with us, and actually he's a driver of the church even all the way back to Moses, we believe that Jesus Christ was present in many ways. When we see things entering into history like heroism, we see regularly Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, entering into history. All right. So we got the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity. Uh, I was, uh, I'm really glad that this happened to me. I, I'm going to just explain it. I, I think the third person of the Trinity, for me, is very uh, intimate. Uh, it's very personal, right? And it's, it's repetitive. You know, I, I look around in creation, and uh, every time that I see a shady tree, I think to myself, oh, well, that might be a way, of God, a way that I can connect with God the Father. Every time I see heroism in a Bible story, including Judith, I think to myself, oh, well, God's present, and he's entered into history in the second person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is very personal and intimate. And so the best way that I like to explain it, I walked in here and I smelled the incense that you guys use, right? That's very personal to me. I mean, I've been to churches uh, all over the United States, possibly even the world. And it's still so funny. Whenever I walk into a specific church, I say, oh, I'm at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, right? And in a specific way, I attach personally it's not like the church has revealed the smell of incense to be a churchy type thing or an Our Lady of Mount Carmel-ish type thing, right? But still the Holy Spirit has revealed himself repetitively to me personally. That's that third aspect. So uh, uh, types of incense is a great example. Or for me too, it's uh, certain like hymns that I attach with uh, major events uh, within my life, you know, uh, masses that were important to me or, uh, you know, events or uh, e even cantors, you know, in some sorts of ways. I say to myself, oh, God had really revealed himself in this certain way at this certain time to me personally. And so that's another way that God reveals himself. All right. So God is regularly, whether we like it or not, trying to develop our theological understanding, our imagination, our dreams, our hopes, our, our big, infinite kinds of ideas that we strongly long for. He's always present there for us. He's always looking to uh, strive to make a connection, have a relationship with us. So we need to develop that sacramental imagination. And therefore, hopefully, we can increase our hope as well. All right, with that tolling, I have a... Uh, 
I, I've always been told that uh, attention span is usually connected to your age in minutes of time. So we're at 30 minutes, right? So if you're under 30, I'm sorry. Uh, I've, I've gone over your time, right? But we're going to take uh, just a five-minute uh, really uh, quick break, um, stand, uh, stretch things out. Uh, uh, yeah, um, water yourselves, feed yourselves, take a break. Um, standing is the, I mean, sitting is the new smoking, as they've said. Uh, so, um, yeah, stretch it out. You athletes, you're only around to run around the campus eight times, eight times max. And then you got to be back here in five minutes. So we're going to recollect in five minutes. So that's going to be 7.36. Great. Feed and water yourselves. Great. All righty, everybody. We'll get back started here. The second portion, I wanted to start with a, a quotation that I think that uh, talks a lot about um, and speaks pretty much a, a lot of volumes to, to, to what I'm trying to develop here in the sacramental uh, imagination. Uh, it's one of the, the four Latin fathers, his, his name is St. Jerome, um, spent a lot of time developing the Latin version of the Bible that we now call the Latin Vulgate. Um, but he was a great scripture scholar. But what's really interesting is that much, as much as he was a big nerd and was a was a huge uh, um, to the to the book kind of guy, um, he writes this about scripture. I think it's really interesting. Quote: I beg of you, my dear brothers, to live among this Bible, to meditate upon it, to know nothing else, to seek nothing else. Does not such a life seem to you a foretaste? of heaven here on earth. Let not the simplicity of the life or the scripture or the poorness of its vocabulary offend you, for these are due either to the faults of the translator or else to deliberate purpose, for in this way it is better fitted for the instruction of an unlettered congregation as the educated person can take one meaning and the uneducated another from one and the same sentence. I am not so dull or so forward as to profess that I myself know it, or that I can pluck upon the earth the fruit which has its roots in heaven, but I confess that I should like to do so. Put myself before the man who sits idle, and while I lay no claim to be a master, I readily pledge myself to be a fellow student. The good teacher, Jesus, told us that Quote, everyone that asks shall receive, and he that seeks shall find, and to him that knocks the door shall be, shall be opened. So, what then shall we do? Let us learn upon earth that knowledge which will continue with us in heaven. Let us learn upon earth that knowledge which will continue with us in heaven. End quote. So, um, as I said, uh, as a systematician myself, and in, in, in uh, kind of my my the ways that I was formed in seminary, um, I, I've developed this uh, a mathematical equation that I think that applies here. But we're gonna not gonna use the regular operators within a, a, a mathematical, and and further than that, we're not gonna use numbers. But I, I think that this is a really helpful diagram as to ultimately what I'm trying to talk about in the second point uh, about the. Uh, the necessity of us developing both hope and a sacramental imagination, not just so that we can uh, strive toward it, but so that we can survive, so that we can make it to heaven, so that it can be indwelling in us and we can obtain all of the, the desires that we want so much. But here's my equation. I'm going to give you the equation for anxiety. Every single time you follow my equation, you're going to get anxiety. I guarantee you upwards, downwards, diagonal, it doesn't matter. If you follow my equation, you're going to get anxiety, okay? Anxiety equals this, a cross minus meaning. Anxiety equals a cross minus meaning. Let's break that down a little bit, right? We all have our crosses in our life, right? No matter what, 
We're always going to be uh, gifted uh, crosses. Sometimes they're really, really hard to bear. Sometimes they're not fun, and sometimes they're painful. Sometimes they're uncomfortable, and sometimes we downright do not want to carry them at all. How can we endure the pressure of this cross? Well, I would say that it's meaning, right? Every time, if I give you a cross and I say, there's no point to it, there's no reason that you should be carrying that cross, uh, it's pointless, uh, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, you're just carrying that cross because I want you to carry that cross. I'm going to guarantee you that that cross will give you anxiety. The thanks, thanks be to God, the opposite is also true. Every single time that you're given a cross, which naturally we're going to be given a cross, but rather than depriving it of meaning, if we add an absolute overwhelming amount of meaning and purpose and reason and, and, and point of why we're carrying that cross, we can endure anything. And the nice thing, too, is that that anxiety, it turns into joy. All of a sudden, all of the burdens of, of carrying whatever cross that it is, it's all worth it if we can understand why Jesus is doing this and why he's giving that, that cross to us so that we can obtain heaven. But that's what's really important is that a lot of time that meaning piece, again, it's not anything that I can point to here on earth. It's all infinite and it all points to heaven and that's why it's so important for us to be able to develop, develop that sacramental imagination so we can latch onto our crosses, not with anxiety, but with joy, so that we can carry them and get through them. Um, I, I, I think it's really interesting in the, uh, in the secular world, we have a term for this. It's a psychological term, and it's called learned helplessness. Maybe you, uh, a psychology uh, people out there have heard this before. Learned helplessness is a, it's a phenomenon uh, where repeated exposure to uncontrollable stressors results in failing to use any methods to control our response to those stressors that are at our disposal in the future. So essentially, those experiencing learned helplessness are said to learn that they lack behavioral control over the events in their environment, which, in turn, it undermines their motivation to make changes or attempt to alter situations. Uh, the first people to describe this uh, in a, a measured experience uh, experiment, rather, uh, were the American psychologists Stephen F. Meyer and Martin E. P. Seligman. And so, Seligman and his partner conducted a series of classic experiments in the 1960s, in which um, some dogs were placed in a chamber, okay, where they received electric shocks through the floor, um, from which they could not escape. Uh, and so that was what was called the non-escape condition, right? Okay. And then another group of dogs in the escape group, uh, in the escape condition, uh, could escape those shocks by pressing a panel with their nose, right? Okay, so shocks would naturally come. There was one group in which there was no way that they could get out from the shocks. There was another group in which they could press a panel with their nose and then they would uh, not receive this, the shock if they touched that with their nose, right? Okay, so in the second phase, both of those groups uh, were placed in uh, a similar environment. And it was in a, what was called a shuttle box uh, divided by a barrier in the middle that the dogs could jump over in order to escape the shocks. What's really fascinating is that only the dogs that had learned that by touching that uh, with their nose, that panel with their nose, those were the only ones that even tried to jump over that divider in the middle to escape the shocks. The other dogs, they would not. They just expected that that pain was to come upon them, and they made no effort whatsoever to escape the harm. Because... Earlier on, they had learned that uh, trying to strive towards something that is forward-looking and positive was unobtainable. When the dogs in the non-escape condition were given the opportunity to escape the shocks by jumping across that partition, most failed even to try 
They seemed to just give up and passively accept any shocks the experimenters would choose to administer. A lot of times, the dogs would just lay down. This example is in dogs who lack the faculties of reason and self-consciousness as us humans do. But sometimes we can think that hope is just a nice thing to have. But by all means, it is not necessary to survival in our own thinking, right? But I disagree completely with that. It is helpful to discourage someone to hope in Lady Luck at a poker table, for example, because as we stated before, hope is about vision of infinite heavenly things, not anything in this world. However, for any human being to say to another that they mustn't get their hopes up about eternal life with Jesus and all the good stuff that comes with it, it's in my opinion equivalent to murder. I think it is a well-spent life cheering for the seemingly delusional who spend hours contemplating the mystery of the rosary, right? We can, we can tell ourselves that we're delusional by, by praying these mysteries. I love it when people ask me to explain the Trinity to them because while we'll never figure it out all out, it does afford us the opportunity to realize that none of us can understand the Trinity, Not because it's a math problem too big to solve, but because the Trinity is a mystery because we don't have the imagination and hope big enough to fully grasp the triune nature of that God. It's an incredible thing. So my third point is just, uh, I I made a list of a few practicals. I'm sure that you can dream up uh, many, many more, but just a few practical ways that we might fully embrace this development of sacramental virtue and later, therefore, this hope, this this theological virtue of hope that it it, it latches us, it it, it runs parallel to obtaining heaven. So um, one of the big ones, prayer time. I think it's the best time one can develop the virtue of sacramental imagination. Put yourself there, present at the wedding feast at Cana, for example. What does it smell like? What does excellent wine that God created from water taste like? In what ways is the world around me, creation, the the scripture that I'm reading, the devotional I'm trying to benefit from, in what ways does it show me what heaven and the infinite is like? How does it show me who God is? Here's another idea. Novels and fiction are not pointless. I'm a big one on this one. Well, you've got to be careful because some of the, the modern stuff that's out there can sneak up, uh, uh, sneak in some bad stuff. Um, most of the traditional novels are really important in holiness, right? Sacram- sacramental imagination, when it comes to heroic lives or great stories, they're muscles. And they will atrophy if we don't maintain their strength. Number three, uh, I would suggest to limit some screen time. I miss the days when uh, myself and the boys in the neighborhood, we would spend hours, I kid you not, hours, making up stories much more elaborate and beautiful and profound at seven years old than the best episode of Stranger Things in existence, right? I mean, we just go back in the backyard and make up fantastic stories with sticks that we found back there. That's developing an imagination, now, as, as adults, I mean, that means that, that might be crazy to go out in your backyard and, and, and play games and, and think of a, a story uh, that's present there. However, uh, I, even as adults, I think it's an appropriate thing. I think it's a good thing for us to embrace that imagination because heaven is just as outlandish as any of those kinds of things, yet it is so foundational to our uh, theological development. Fourth one, support others in their dreams, especially when they point toward heaven. Um, get excited when uh, a peer shares some, something that's beautiful with you. Uh, if you don't have a person in your life that can support your hopes, dreams, and excitement about the eternal bliss of heaven, well, find one and communicate with them that this is a really important thing for me. Um, I, I want to talk about heaven and how great it is. 
I think that as Catholics, we have a severely deprived uh, understanding of what heaven's going to be like. Frankly, I mean, wearing togas, walking on clouds, and listening to harps, to me, sounds boring, right? Develop it. I mean, uh, Hildegard von Bingen talks about lakes of beer, which piques my interest, right? Whatever it is for you, develop your imagination of what, the, what heaven can be like. It's that. You're going to receive everything that you could possibly want. It's incredible. Um, so if you don't have that person uh, to support you in that, uh, find them, communicate to them that, that you need that. Sometimes all it takes is to say, I'm interested in whatever it is, dirt biking, reading, art, cross-stitch. And I want us to figure out why it's a little bit like heaven. And childlike good giddiness in this is a really good sign, I think. I think that this parish is really well developed in this. The next one is, is gratitude, right? When we realize everything is a gift, especially the stuff we like, we'll realize that the stuff we don't like doesn't originate on earth, right? And well, the good stuff comes from a place where we're going. So if we can embrace gratitude, that stuff that we like, we know that it's coming from uh, heaven and even if we like a partial bit of it in heaven, it's going to be infinitely better and more likable. Another one, participate in the liturgical year. I think every Catholic should be required to have ice cream on solemnities. I'm serious. Uh, Making our bodies, our mind, and our thoughts long for and desire things in Christ's life is, well, the definition of hope, right? Latch in every way possible, latch on to the hope of heaven and all the great gifts that Christ is giving us, and pretty soon we'll uh, be experiencing uh, the, the heaven that God wants to give us uh, between our ears. And lastly, um, I wanted to include uh, the, and encourage you to make goals for yourself. And I don't want um, I don't want pathetic goals that are actually about doing things in vain, right? I want to learn something I'm interested in, or I want to finish the song I've been writing. Achieving a certain social status or a job title are usually red flags, but uh, those goals are oriented toward the world and not heaven. So set some goals for yourself. Um, Do things that uh, inspire your imagination and then execute on them um, so that you can know how many great gifts God wants to give you. So to conclude, um, I just wanted to share with you a quote of a, an Andrew Greeley. Uh, he's an incredible author, and he writes a, a, a following book called Catholic Imagination. I highly recommend it. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, something that he says that I, th- I think it's so inspiring, and, and we'll finish with that, okay? He says, quote, Suppose that you, gentle reader, are a Catholic, Having considered the enchantment touched upon in this essay, perhaps some of you will understand a little more clearly why you hang on to your heritage. Despite the problems you may have with some of your leaders, perhaps others of you who are bitterly bitterly angry at Catholicism will pause to ponder what is good about it, a goodness that human frailty and malice cannot destroy. Those of you who are leaders and teachers of whatever ideological hue, may ponder the possibility that you might have missed completely a powerful and critically important component of the Catholic heritage, that indeed you might be prosaic persons surrounded by enchantment. At a minimum, you might admit that enchantment is more important than you thought it was, whether the enchantment of St. Xavier del Bach or Hopkins, quote, may magnificat that's one of his poems, of a first communion or a May crowning or a burning votive candle, of a church that looks like a church instead of a worship center. Those of you who insist that because most Catholics now deny the right of their religious leaders to control their personal lives, they are no different from Protestants, might want to ponder the question of whether there is more to the Catholic heritage than obedience and authority. And the most important matter, the uniquely Catholic views of God, the world, and the relationship between the two continue to be durable, unchanged, and probably unchangeable. Now, suppose you are not Catholic. You might want to consider the possibility that you have misunderstood Catholicism, 
that you have always dismissed as weird mumbo-jumbo combined with the pathetic stubbornness may be utterly consistent with an implicit but systematic way of looking at reality. You may not be, it may not be your way of looking at reality. You might not want to imagine a world in which God lurks everywhere and people respond to him as a community. Fair enough. I won't try to talk you out of that position, but at least you should be willing to admit that it is a legitimate way of imagining reality and to respect the consistency with which Catholic behavior fits that imagination. Imagine, if you will, my separated brother or sister, that you see a large crowd of Catholics wildly cheering, a pope, any pope. You could marvel at the intellectual weakness of such subservience of the teachings of man, who is human like the rest of us. Or you could be shocked by the hypocrisy of people who cheer for their leader while ignoring his injunctions in their everyday life. I suggest to you that you consider the possibility that the crowd of Catholics is cheering for itself, for its church, and for its unity in diversity. The Pope symbolizes the church and the God's, in God's presence in it. It is not a perfect church, and he is not a perfect man. He makes mistakes under ordinary circumstances, just as the rest of us do. The cheering Catholics who may disagree vehemently with the Pope on many issues, and he would tell them that they were wrong to do so, nonetheless, applaud him not out of mindless obedience, but because of enthusiasm for a way of looking at life, which they learned from their intimate and local relationships. The Pope, alternatively, confirms for them something far more important. That the enchantment is real. That grace is everywhere. And the stories they've heard are true. End quote. So that does it for this evening. Thank you so much for being here. Um,